Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey back to the 80s, my co-host, Jason Nasek. Hello, Jason. You ever killed a man? You ever break up a bank robbery? I'm 22 years in the FBI, Bill. I've come up against the mafia, the Ku Klux Klan, the KGB. Understand me. I'm qualified to go after this guy. You think you are, but you're not. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing the 1988 action-adventure movie Shoot to Kill, starring Sidney Poitier, Tom Berenger, and Christy Alley, directed by Roger Spottiswood. This movie is rated R with a running time of one hour and 50 minutes. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the BHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Sidney Poitier, one of film's most distinguished and acclaimed actors, returns to the screen after a decade-long absence in this must-see action-filled thriller. When a cunning murderer vanishes into the rugged mountains of the Pacific Northwest, pursuing FBI agent Warren Stanton, Poitier, must exchange familiar city streets for unknown wilderness trails. Completely out of his element, Stanton is forced to enlist the aid of expert tracker Jonathan Knox, Platoon's Tom Berenger. It's a turbulent yet vital relationship they must maintain in order to survive, and one that becomes increasingly desperate when Knox's girlfriend Sarah, Kirstie Alley of Cheers, becomes the killer's latest hostage. Shoot to kill. Otherwise known as deadly pursuit. But we'll get into that later. Bill Bant, welcome to episode two of season two. How are you tonight? I'm doing well, Jason, and yourself. I'm doing great. Did I say that right? Did I say episode two of season two? Correct. Or did I say it back? Okay, good. I'm losing my mind this evening. Bear with me, ladies and germs. Glad to be here. Let's get into it, man. All right. Yeah. So uh, that was what's on the box. And uh, as always, let's move on to our earliest memories of Shoot to Kill. Jason, start us off. Hey, man, it's 1988, and Shoot to Kill is all over my cable box, and that's why I was watching it on repeat. As a kid, I just found this movie engaging. I did not see this in the theater. I did not see this with my family at the movies. This was definitely a cable watch. I remember that Clancy Brown was a bad dude. That's what I remember. He was killing a lot of people in this movie. I remember that Poitier was a city cop and Berenger was a capable mountain man and that they had to track a killer in the mountains. That's kind of what I remembered from this movie. I clearly found it gripping enough to watch it over and over again. I mean, I recall the action being taut and intense. And, you know, it's just, the fact I may have had an attachment uh, to this because I felt like I had discovered a good movie I hadn't heard of or seen in the theaters, meaning as a kid, just watching HBO, whatever it was on, and like I said, the cable box that, you know, I just came across it and I was about all movies that didn't matter what kind of movie. I just wanted to watch a movie all day, every day, that if it was a good movie that I didn't know about for some reason or hadn't read about or heard about in the papers or seen a, a movie preview for and it just came on and it was like, man, this is this is awesome. I can't wait to see it again. Uh, I, you know, we did 
covered a little bit of this uh, during our Under the Radar 80s mini-sode. So forgive us if we repeat some of that information during this podcast, but that's about it, man. I like honestly, Bill Band, I can't remember much as far as early memories goes, which made me fearful that there was a reason for that. Because usually if you can't remember much from a movie, that means it was not memorable. Right. Um, we'll get into it, man. And, and uh, a little bit more of my initial thoughts, but that's really all I've got. I mean, I rem- I do, of course, remember Kirstie Alley being in this and being very attractive. And that's the extent of it, man. So go ahead. What are your earliest memories of Shoot to Kill? That's okay. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Bill. I feel better. Yeah, Appreciate that. That's all right. So for me, I do remember this movie coming out because of the big deal they were making about Sidney Poitier being in front of the screen for the first sure. time in a decade. And I knew who Sidney Poitier was, but I didn't know who Sidney Poitier was. I think the only movie I had seen of his at that point was The Defiant Ones. And the only reason I had seen that is because they had done the TV movie of The Defiant Ones with uh, Robert Ehrlich and Carl Weathers. And of course, because they did that, and then I think it might have been like PBS or something that showed the original with him and Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis. So that's, that's really the only movie I had ever seen of him at that point. So I didn't see this in the theater. It was a rental. I don't think I really got into Sitting Pointy until college when uh, one of my classes, they showed in the heat of the night. And then I was like, oh, yeah, okay. I need to watch more movies by this guy. But there's still, I've maybe only seen like a th- third of his filmography, though. I haven't seen much myself either. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is the, probably the only entire Sydney Portia film I've actually oh, Okay, yeah. Watched. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen bits and pieces of others, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it came on cable a lot, and I did watch it a lot. Yeah, the whole thing, hiking through the wilderness, trying to figure out who in that. the, the Like the fishing group. Yeah, the fishing yeah, group. The, who was going to be the bad guy who were, you know, who was supposed to be the red, what was like the red herrings they were throwing out. It was like, Oh, is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Yeah. It was smart casting. Yeah. To, to do, you know, to do it that like that. Cause we're like, Oh yeah. It could be that guy. You know, that guy. Like Tom Berenger. I had really only known from platoon at that point. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know much about him either. And of course it was the, the opposites fish out of water story. Of course, they're clashing the whole time and they're going to have to come together at the end in order to catch this killer. And like you said, when we did our underrated films of the 80s, that was on your list. And it was initially on my list, too. And it got knocked off. And I mean, the reason that we're doing this is because, unfortunately, Sidney Poitier passed away in January. Right. He is one of the true legends of Hollywood. And like I said, he was a little bit before our time, Mm -hmm. but he's definitely... Because I, I do get into these runs where there's a, you know an actor from the past that I'll go and try to watch as much as I can, um, whether it be uh, Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart or John Wayne or even Elvis. And I did go through a little run of Sidney Poitier where I've, I saw most of his major films. Um, but even when we did the podcast on uh, Stir Crazy uh, right. back in season one, I didn't realize he had directed a whole bunch of movies. And I, I don't think outside of... I think to Sir with Love. I never saw anything he did in the 70s. So I do want to go back and see those. Absolutely. Well, I certainly need to do more research as far as just watching. So, yeah, he was such a pioneer of Hollywood being a black actor. 
being one of the biggest actors in Hollywood at that time, too. So um, we figured we should uh, give him a little tribute, uh, talk about one of his movies where he came back to run the screen. It kind of and it kind of stinks, too, because I was even looking like post this. He really didn't do that many films after this either. He is a true legend. It was just great watching him in this. You could see what it was that made him, that presence he had on the screen, which made him what he was. It was surprising to watch this thinking, what was it about the script that made him decide to return to the front of the camera? Mm-hmm. Like I said, good question. It, yeah. yeah, it's a good movie. It's not a great movie, but we both enjoyed it. And we'd love to talking to you about it for the next 75 minutes. Absolutely. You know, thanks for sharing your thoughts on Sidney Poitier and his legacy. Speaking of Sidney Poitier, it was in 2002 when he won an honorary Oscar, and it happened to be the same night that Denzel Washington wins his Oscar for Best Actor for Training Day. And it was at that same award ceremony that Denzel Washington actually took the stage to uh, introduce Sidney Poitier, which was uh, such an influence for him and paved the way for him. And uh, so special moment there, just uh, pretty, pretty cool for Denzel Washington, obviously, and Sidney Poitier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some some great thoughts, man, uh, regarding the film overall and, you know, kind of our opinion of it now, which is really interesting. And that's kind of that's why we do this, Bill Bant, is the, the then and now. It was fun because, again, I had such few earliest memories of the film. I went into this going, this is going to be a little bit new for me in a way. Some initial thoughts from my end. I feel like we need more saxophone in theme songs. That's what, what I feel. Okay. I'm a, obviously a big Lethal Weapon fan, and I love David Sanborn and the sax on that score and the Lethal Weapon soundtracks throughout. But I noted that immediately when the theme from this kicks in in the beginning. And I always love city landscapes at night when it's clearly in the mid, like middle of the night, early hours of the morning, possibly but it's still dark and there's no one around. It's like a ghost town and you have like the wet streets and the street lights, buildings, and it's just quiet outside of the actual theme song. So I love the, the kind of opening of this movie. It's downtown San Francisco. Very cool. You know what it reminded me of? What's I felt like I was watching a 70s movie. It was just yeah, that hard, absolutely. gritty, the music. And like you said, with the, with the quiet streets, kind of, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm going back Great another call. decade. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're about to watch Dirty Harry or something like that. Yep. It was great. And it helped that I personally was watching it on YouTube and the quality wasn't awesome. It was good, but Mm. it wasn't uh, necessarily like HDX on Voodoo or something like crazy like that. So it was a little grainy on top of it all. Yeah. It felt cool. It's like, oh yeah, I'm really getting transported back to the eighties watching this. So, and immediately when Sidney Poitier shows up, you can feel his presence. Now he's about 60 years old when they shot this, I'm assuming 60, 61. And Immediately you get it. Like even if you didn't know who Sidney Poitier was at all, as soon as he steps out of a squad car, cop car, FBI car, whatever it is, and stands up, he's commanding. He's just got that presence. It's funny. I was waiting to feel it too. Cause mm-hmm. I knew I was like, oh, here he comes. And then yeah, yeah you feel it right man. away. You do. So he's commanding. Yet then when he speaks, he has a gentleness about him. So he has a, such great combination. He's eloquent, but... He has a great delivery, but his voice has a kind of a softer pitch, or I'm trying to think of the right tone. And uh, so he has such a great focus, 
but combined with that calming voice, that vocal quality, he's just he's a unique uh, man, a unique performer. Uh, so you can you can sense it right away. So initial thought right there is Cody was sixty at this time. He looks fantastic because uh, you think about Tom Berenger's around thirty seven, and Clancy Brown, who plays the the killer in this, is twenty seven, which is insane. Wow. Clancy Brown is only 63 years old today. What Clancy Brown is ageless regardless. And I'll give him a shout out later, but I couldn't believe he was only 27, which makes him around 25 when he's in Highlander. Wow. I didn't think about that. Isn't that crazy how young he was? Yeah. Cause he's always looked more mature. He looks older. He's a yes. bigger dude. He just has a presence about him that exudes a little bit more of an older guy, but he's not. So yeah, I would have said mid thirties. Oh, definitely. Especially when he's amongst the other hikers and he blends in. And those guys mm -hmm. are clearly in their mid-30s, if not older. Right? Yeah, I totally agree. Love the Pacific Northwest as a setting, which is uh, a character unto itself in this movie. It's always mysterious. I don't know if you've spent some time up maybe in the Washington area, Seattle area. Uh, I've had been a that little, corner yet. little bit of experience up there. And it's just, it's mysterious. It's very cool. I love the pine trees, uh, just the forest unto itself, the mountains, that whole setting, the fog, the rain, of course. But when that sun is out, it's just even more gorgeous. But yeah, definitely a, a very cool setting for uh, this type of movie. So these outdoor adventure films always address fears, which fall into the categories of activities that frighten the shit out of me, things I'd rather not do, or ways I don't want to die. Oh, yeah. You know, this type of setting this kind of film lends itself to already that tense, fearful feeling uh, when you're watching it. It lends itself to that thriller genre, right? Things such as falling from great heights onto rocks or generally succumbing to the elements, i.e. freezing to death, or uh, maybe crossing a bridge or using a basket cage to cross over a hundred foot gorge, slipping off a cliff, eating raw live fish, being mauled and then eaten alive by a grizzly bear, maybe altitude sickness, gangrene, exhaustion, dehydration, just to name a few of the fears of the outdoor adventure. I'm not, I don't consider myself as an outdoors man, by no means a mountain man. I, I still am a fan of the outdoors, but uh, when you watch these movies, there's just this inherent fear. It's like this install instilled oh, yeah. in you when you watch it. Another initial thought, Kirstie Alley looks great, man. She's cute. I never realized, Bill Bant, that we never really know the killer's actual name. Oh, yeah. Clancy Brown is the actor. He takes the name Steve, but I assume that is just an alias. Yes, I would agree with that. So I never realized that we don't know anything about this guy outside that he, the fact that he's an extortionist, a murderer, a thief. We don't know his background or anything. So I thought that was kind of a revelation for me. I do appreciate the pacing of this movie because it is, you know what? It's a bit plain and straightforward. And I don't mean plain in a bad way. It's just a little bit by the numbers. Yeah. And it's not bad. It's just, okay. All right. A little average, straightforward, but it moves. It's got some good cinematography. Speaking of the setting, once again, like you mentioned, the concept is sound where you have that, the red herring aspect, because we're following it's like the Sierra Nevada group, right? Or the uh, like it's a hiking slash fishing group. It's uh, four different guys going along with their guide, who is Kirstie Alley, playing the character of Sarah. And these guys are climbing up through the mountains to go find the ultimate fishing spot. And we don't know which one is the bad guy. 
part of that thriller aspect. Also, yeah, I mean, I've always liked Tom Berenger. You mentioned Platoon. He was also in The Big Chill before this, but Platoon really was same same for me. That's really what I knew him from. Right. I shit on you all. Man, he's hardcore in that. Then I afterward became a fan of Someone to Watch Over Me, another great 80s movie, Ridley Scott directed. That's one we may have to visit on this podcast at some point. Major League. Yes. Tom Berger has some uh, heavy hitters, no pun intended. Yep. Uh, and then even later on, like Inception, which is in more recent times, Tom Berger is still doing it. Did you know that there, speaking of Tom Berger movies, did you know that there are eight movies in the Sniper franchise? I knew there was a couple and I saw the first one in the theater. I didn't realize it was they got up to eight. It's crazy. A lot of them are straight to video, the latter ones. Yeah, and he's like in maybe two or three of them. He's in a, a lot of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought some other people I don't know how over. much. Right. I didn't do a super deep dive on it, mm-hmm. but I was like, what? Yeah, <laughs> so I've only seen the first one. Yeah, I've only seen yeah, the first one. Yeah, me too. Isn't Billy Zane? Billy Zane. Billy Zane, yep. Right, too? Okay. So last initial thought for me is that this is a slightly above average action adventure thriller that is still well-paced, as I mentioned, comes in at about an hour and 47 minutes, but it keeps you engaged. And this is why I think I liked it as a kid and why I found it enjoyable watching it today. It's not awesome, but it's better than good. Uh, It's just one of those movies where you kind of just need to know what happens. So once you start watching it, it's kind of like things start unfolding. You're like, ah, okay, now I'm I'm invested just enough. I got to see this thing through. I want to know. And I think it actually has a pretty kick-ass action sequence at the end. I think it it's worth it getting to the end. But that's it for me, initial thoughts. Did you have any other thoughts upon re-watching it, just that off the top of your head? Yeah, it was interesting, too, because, you know, like I said, we kind of talked about this earlier, and I hadn't seen this in forever. I mean, there was bits and pieces I remembered, and then it was one of those, oh, am I going to watch this and now not like it? And then when I was watching it, you know, it all starts flooding back. Like, I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I kind of remember this. I kind of remember this. Sure. I remember this. But then, yeah, the next thing you know, it was over. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, for a two-hour movie, it definitely goes by quickly. Yeah, they get to it. And I mean, there is some things we'll discuss later on, plot points and all that kind of stuff. But right. um, it's yeah, it's a solid movie. It's not a great movie. It's not a bad movie. It's a solid movie. Yeah, the other initial thought, um, Jason, are we secretly running the Christy Alley fan club? Because I realize this is the third movie now we've done with Christy Alley in it. We've done more Christy Alley movies than anybody else right now. <laughs> so Summer School, Star Trek Two, and now this. So I don't, I don't know. I forgot we, we did. Yeah, are Star we Trek secretly II. Scientologists and not know anything about that? I don't know. It's possible. I, we could have been brainwashed somehow. But I was thinking about this, too, because I was like, all right, if you were to name me 10 actresses from the 80s, would right. Christy Alley be in those 10? Uh, it wouldn't be. She probably wouldn't be at the forefront of my mind when thinking about that. That's a great question. Yeah, I was like in the 20s before maybe I would mention her. If you were saying 80s television, maybe. But 80s movies? Right away, I'm thinking like Kathleen Turner, Michelle Pfeiffer. Right. And again, I, when I think Kirstie Alley, the first thing that comes to mind is Cheers. Correct. So, yeah, but f- movies, yeah. No, but we've already done three movies with Kirstie Alley. Yeah. We have Kirstie Alley bias. That's fine. 
Because like when Jason and I try to pick these movies for the podcast, we try not to do actors back to back or the same year back to back. Because there's there's so many people during the decade, we want to make sure we try to cover everybody. So I just I just found it funny. I was like, oh my god, this is the third time we're doing Christy Alley already, and there's actors and actresses we have not even talked about any of their films that we will at some point. Right. God, we must secretly be in some kind of Christy Alley fan club that we do not know about. Absolutely. Good call, man. Whatever Christy Alley does off camera, that's you know whatever. You know, I think she was the first one that had the that I recall as a kid with the name Kirsty versus Christy. Right. I was thinking, wow, she, why does she spell her name like that? Mm-hmm. I kind of like it though. She stands out because of it. And so anytime I ever come across another Kirsty, I think of Kirsty Alley. Mm-hmm. Anywho. All right. So let's move on. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from shoot to kill? I will start from the beginning. That's always a good place to start. So I'm going with my first favorite scene is the hostage negotiation slash introduction of the killer, a.k.a. Steve, a.k.a. Clancy Brown in this movie. I enjoyed that opening. I thought I thought it was tense because we know that the owner of a fine gems store has gone into a store late at night to retrieve a bunch of diamonds and he sets off the alarm. The cops show up, the FBI shows up, thus Sidney Poitier as Warren Stanton shows up. And we learn that the owner's wife is being held hostage at his home by this killer who wants the diamonds. So they go to the house, that being the FBI and the cops, and they get on the bullhorn and they start negotiating with the killer and they actually just get on the phone and the killer uses some smart tactics. That's why I like this scene really is it's kind of creepy because you have the killer whispering over the phone. Uh, He's disguising his voice and he's talking to Sidney Poitier uh, and he's whispering and he says things like, let's go for a ride. That's my favorite line. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or later on in the scene. Jesus Christ, that's as far as you can throw. Yes, that's a good one. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so they get to the home and the killer is talking to Sidney Poitier. Sidney Poitier is playing negotiator a bit in the scene. The killer releases the maid from the house, then shoots her in the back just to prove that he means business. And then he comes out of the house with the wife of the gem store owner. And they are covered by a blanket. So the sharpshooter, the FBI, can't take the shot. He doesn't know where to aim. Uh, So kind of smart. They hop into a car. They pull out. And Poitier's got to follow him in his own car. They go to the pier. And now they're on the water. And bottom line is, there's a, you know, it's supposed to be a trade. Poitier's supposed to give the killer the diamonds. And then the killer turns over the wife unharmed. It's an elderly woman. Uh, So we're sympathetic to her and just want her to be okay. Well, Poirier throws the diamonds and it turns out that the bad guy gets away with the diamonds and does not release the hostage. Instead, shoots her in the eye. It's pretty brutal killing. And we are led to believe he escapes on a boat. But unbeknownst to the cops... He actually never went anywhere. He just set the boat off. He turned it on and the boat went down the river. Our killer remained hiding underneath the pier, which I thought was another smart tactic. 
So I thought that was pretty cool. I don't know. There's some elements in here that are uh, pretty intense with Portier following him to the pier. And there's a sharpshooter in the back of Portier's car and he can't ever take the shot. So the killer outsmarts the FBI. I thought it was good. I thought it was uh, well-written, well-thought-out. It's a good start to the movie. I'll be honest. I actually forgot most of that scene and how it played out. The scene where he sends out the maid and then shoots her. And then yeah, basically says, yeah, I'm proving a point. Or do you get, you know, get my point? Did Damn. you get the message? Oh, that's kind of rough. And then I felt really bad for the sharpshooter as an actor. Because I'm thinking, hey, we're going to get you in a movie with Sidney Poitier. You're going to be the sharpshooter. And he says the same line over and over again. I don't have a shot. Right. I can't get a shot. I don't have a shot. I just felt bad for him. I was like, <laughs> oh, you get, to do, you get to do a Steve with Sidney Poitier. And all you get to say is, I don't have a shot. I need a shot. How many I times do you think shot. he rehearsed that? Like at home and he's looking in the mirror and he's like, oh, I got to make the most of what I got. It's only this one line. How, what am I going to, what word am I going to put more emphasis on? I just want Sydney to remember me after we, we shoot this. Yeah. How do I make this memorable? But yeah, that's all. That's all he basically says. I'm the, I'm the best shooter. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a shot. Like I right. can maybe get a shot. And I was like, oh, that poor guy. But hey, you got to be in the movie. So yeah. Kudos to him. Absolutely. Sniper guy. But yeah, I mean, it does show that this guy be business. He's dangerous, and when they go after him, uh, they, they're going to certainly have their hands full. So, yeah, this is a good setup. Right. The, stakes, for... the stakes are high right off the get. You, that's a good point. We we know that this killer is smart and ruthless. He'll do whatever it takes to accomplish his goals and get away. Yep, he means business. Yep. I'm going to do a moment first. So we're jumping ahead, jumping ahead, jumping ahead, jumping ahead. All right. Let's jump around. Jump around. So... Of course, um, Sidney Poitier, uh, Stanton is trying to track down this killer because he got away and he's upset and he's obsessed with catching him and find out about a murder up in the Washington area. And it's the same M.O. as the wife that died. So he figures, all right, this is where the man is. And we pretty much figure out that this killer has basically killed one of the fishermen hikers and has taken his place. He's going to use this to get into Canada, get through the border and escape. Right. So they hire a local guide who is played by Tom Berenger and Jonathan Knox. And of course, right away, uh, we find out that Jonathan is involved with Sarah, who's leading this expedition for the fishing. So, of course, he wants to go save her and doesn't want Stanton around to slow him down. And of course... Right. Because because Stanton is an FBI agent and as qualified as he may be, he's still a city guy. And Knox pretty much. I mean, he's like in the middle of no. He lives in the middle of nowhere. He's all about the outdoors. He, he knows, you know, these mountains and these trails like the back of his hand. And right. He knows how to track and all that. So and then he, he I mean, he has an idea where he knows where Sarah's probably going so he can get there as quick as possible and hopefully save, save the day. So. It gives the elements of the fish out of water, the, the butting head element to it. So there's all this this tension back and forth going through too. But there's elements of uh, levity throughout it. And one of my favorite ones is when they're going through this hiking trail, there's like cabins set up along the way. And each of them has a radio so they can check in back at base to say, you know, everything's go okay. We're here at this point. By tomorrow, we're going to be here or we're going to take a different trail. And we're going to go here. So at least... At the base, they kind of know where this party's going to be going at all times. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it's the second night. Stanton and Knox are in this in the cabin and Stanton wakes up. And like I said, there's, there's always this going back and forth where Knox just wants to let Stanton go and go off for his own. And Stanton wakes up and Knox isn't in the cabin. And you're like, Oh crap. Knox went off on his own. Now Stanton's right. going to have to try to figure out how to find Knox in order to find the killer and, and save the day. And Stanton goes to open the door and there's that giant moose. Uh, it's a great moment. Uh, yeah. Uh, just good call. Me, yeah. yeah, just, just maybe Chuck, and he's just kind of looking at it like, "Wait, is this real?" And he, yeah. and he just slams. it's great because yeah, he just freezes. Yeah, just... I mean, how many times you see a moose? Right, and the moose doesn't do anything, and he closes the door, and he, he almost has to look like, "Am I going crazy? Was there an actually moose out there?" And he mm-hmm. goes to open the door, and the moose is gone. But yeah. then Knox comes back in, and nonchalantly just goes, "Hey, did you see that moose?" And then it's the scene cut. Yeah. So it was, it was just a cute little moment. As much tension there was and stuff like there was always this little bits of uh, levity throughout the film that I kind of liked that they kind of were able to pepper in there throughout the film. Good call, man. It's a great moment. And I wanted to put that in my moments if I didn't. I, that actually is a very funny moment because of Poitier's reaction and Behringer's very nonchalant delivery when he says, hey, did you see the moose? You touched on something. It's funny. Wikipedia called this a buddy action cop thriller and that's not what i would have categorized this of or as first off but that it is a kind of a buddy action film i mean you do see they partner up they're forced into this kind of situation you like you said fish out of water and it goes both ways we have city boy out in the mountains and then we have mountain guy in the city at the end so we get it gets reversed but we get to watch their relationship develop over the course of the film. And we do get these moments of hilarity in between, or I should just say levity, which is nice because they're not just at each other's throats the whole time. And they do end up having to work together, obviously, to get through this to in order to save Sarah, to get to the killer and et cetera. So we kind of see this relationship mature and they go through uh, a bit of hell in order to kind of bond because the situation is rather dire. Uh, it's nice to have those moments of levity for sure. And I, I'm going to touch on a couple of other moments. Uh, I think that lend itself to levity as well, mm-hmm. but I could call it the moose scene or moose moment. The moose the moment. Yes. we call it the moose moment. Right. I like it. And as far as I know, when it comes to, if you see a moose in the wild, do not approach it. That's not a good idea. Do not mess with the moose. That's what I've heard. Yeah, they're that, very, they're quite dangerous. If you, you you don't, I think it's huge. Best back off. Yeah, whatever you do, back away slowly. I I don't even know if that's the word. Don't listen to me. Uh, I don't want just don't approach it. Yeah, exactly. Just don't interfere with the moose. Moving on <laughs> to my next favorite scene, which I am calling crossing the gorge. I like this. Now, this has already been set up by a previous scene where we see Sarah, Kirstie Alley, leading her fishing expedition, this group of four guys, up and over the mountains to, I assume, which is going to be a river, a big, beautiful lake up on top of the mountains where they're going to go fishing. And But in order to get to this location, they're going to have to cross a deep gorge. And in order to do that, they got to get into a basket cage. And this cage hangs off of a rope. And it's a little bit trepidatious here. And you've got to kind of pull yourself in the cage. Well, it will 
carry your weight and your weight alone will kind of like on a zip line situation, it would carry you across the gorge uh, to a certain point, but then you'd have to pull on the rope in order to get yourself to the other side in this basket. Uh, so that's all set up. And then later on, because we have Jonathan Knox, Tom Berenger, and we have Warren Stanton, FBI agent, uh, Sidney Portier, they are behind a day or two uh, trying to catch up to this fishing expedition. They get to the gorge, and now the basket is stuck on the opposite side. The little piece of, it's like a log has been jammed into the system, basket stuck. It's on the opposite end. So how are they going to cross the gorge without the basket? Well, Handy Mountain Man just um, like immediately starts tying a rope around his waist, gives it to Sidney Portier and says, here, you let out the slack. I'm going to literally get on this rope and climb across the gorge. And that's intense, man. Talk about like, if you have a fear of heights, this gets a little, you know what it reminded me of was a cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. Completely. Yeah. That made me think a lot about cliffhanger watching this movie, to be honest. Oh, no doubt. I saw a lot of, yeah, chasing chasing after the girl and And kind of not being level-headed. Yeah. This is how, you know, speaking of like 80s movies and how impactful they were, because it's, you know, for us growing up, a lot of seeing these things was were firsts for us is the first time you see a movie. So anytime I see a gorge and whether it's a bridge or a rope going across, you know what the first thing I think of is? What's that? Temple of Doom. Oh, yeah. It's Temple of Doom. Yeah. <laughs> Just because I love that iconic scene on the bridge going yeah. across the course. It's, it's safe. It's very safe. With Indy in the middle of it, yeah. chopping the, the rope. Like, it's great. Anyway, so, but this particular scene in Shoot to Kill is very intense. And all of a sudden, the log that was jamming up the basket on the opposite side comes loose while Tom Berenger is hanging, trying to be, you know, manly man cr- climbing across this rope. And the basket comes sliding down the rope and it whacks him, knocking him off the rope. He goes swinging down. Great stunt work. Like this is an intense shot when he falls off and goes swinging down, but he's attached at the waist by the rope. And at the top, you got Podiate, who's thinking fast, by the way, and ties off the rope onto like a wooden post. And Behringer, the rope yanks tight. He swings and smacks the rock face. It's pretty hardcore and ends up climbing up the rock face and Portier has to pull him up. And it's an intense action sequence. Great stunt work, great editing, I thought. I buy it. There wasn't really moments where I'm going, oh, that's a fake or I can tell that's the stunt man in this shot. It was pretty realistic and a little gritty. And that's at the top then when Behringer finally gets back up, he and Portier are both Way, way out of breath. This is where the line is introduced with Poitier just leans over to Behringer and says, you mountain men do this kind of shit a lot. Behringer responds by saying every damn day, which comes back into play at the end of the film. This is the first time where it kind of breaks the ice with the two of them because Stan has technically saved Knox's life. Yeah, because it's like a double whammy when they get up there because the pull rope has been cut. And that's what Tom Berenger ties around him because he's got to tie that off at the other end. And the fact that the basket's been jammed because technically with gravity, it's put, the basket's supposed to be actually in the middle, just hanging over the middle of that uh, crevice. I would have been like, let's go around, go around. There's no way I would, I would get on that cable and try to shimmy across. Yeah, yeah, forget about it. 
Now, that's what's cool too, is that we understand it because we know that the killer is amongst this fishing group, right? Or expedition and that mm-hmm. he's making it difficult for, does he know at this point that they're following him or is he just kind of covering his tracks? Is that why he, the rope is cut and the, is it to make think, sure that nobody follows him? I think he's still covering his tracks at that point. Right. Which I would love to have seen how he pulled that off. Oh, no, of course. He, of course he is. He doesn't know yet because he hasn't killed the rest of the fishing mm-hmm. guys at this point. Yeah. He doesn't know until he's got Kirsty held hostage and she's talking to the guys down at the bottom of the mountain. Right. But he's covering his tracks. It's like they go to the first cabin and supposedly he breaks the radio. Right. You know, because we don't know initially which one of the fishing expedition guys when which one of those guys is the killer we just know that the killer is amongst them and is leaving no trace or mm-hmm. no way for anybody to follow them or get in touch with them right so that's kind of a cool aspect but more importantly in this scene like you said Poitier saves Beringer's life that's a point big point for Poitier and another bonding moment for them so a breakthrough moment. Uh, I like that scene. That's my second favorite scene. All right. Like there's a lot of small, it was hard trying to think of scenes because there's a lot more moments, but mm-hmm. um, I would say like my, I agree with that. my favorite scene is because even going back and watching this again, it got me. So Stanton and Knox are finally catching up to Sarah and the killer. We'll just say Steve, because but we don't know his name is. So they're making it really look like they're like they're right on top of them. They're like minutes behind them. Mm-hmm. And you see them kind of running down this hill. And it's of course, you know, two shots earlier, you see Sarah and Steve pass the same hill. So you're like, oh, they are right on top of them. That, you know, the climax is gonna happen. And they get to the bottom of the hill and they both stop and have like the wide eye. And you're thinking, oh, they see Steve and Sarah. Here it goes. And instead, right. it's a grizzly bear. Or the oh, big yeah. brown bear. And uh, <laughs> yeah. that gave that, uh, that surprise, that gave me the, oh, shit. And I forgot about that. And, I mean, the bear is, like, literally right there in front of them. Crap. What, you know, what do we do? And Knox is like, stand still. Don't move. And you think, okay, he's a wilderness guy. He knows. And, of course, the bear starts charging right at him. You're like, oh, my God. Now it's, I got to outrun the other guy because one of us is going to be lunch. Right. And uh, Knox does, of course, the classic trip, bangs his head. And here we go. Stanton turned around, saving the day. And he turns around and faces off with the bear. Right. Starts, you know, doing all these crazy noises and just letting loose, just, you know, trying to intimidate the bear and, and show the bear who's boss. And of course, the bear stands up and you're like, oh, man, there's no way you're you're thinking, uh, here we go. He's going to get all uh, Leo DiCaprio all of a sudden. It's going to be some revenant yep, action. He's going to get some revenant action. Yeah. And then the uh, bear turns and runs off. He finally intimidates the bear and, and runs off. And there's this great line where Knox gets up and he's kind of woozy and he's like, man, I've never seen a grizzly bear just turn and run like that. And then City Poitier goes, everybody else up here acts like they've never seen a black man before. Why should the bear be different? That made me the bust Such out loud. Such a great line. Yeah. That is hilarious because the scene is super intense and it looks pretty real. I mean, the, the bears. Yeah. That's a real I was bear. trying to figure that out. Is that them standing there? Do they have stand-ins? That looks just like them. And there is a shot where the bear is charging and somebody's in the frame with the bear. So yeah. I don't know how they shot that. I was hoping to find something on that in the research. I didn't though. Mm-hmm. How they shot that. 
but it's an intense scene. And then you got Poirier hilariously freaking out doing the, what I've also heard is a tactic, which is something you should do if you encounter a bear. But I, again, don't listen to me. Yeah. Cause you got to make yourself you're seem supposed bigger. To and seem bigger bear, yeah. You make, you just make loud noises and that's what he kind of does. And it, but he does it a little bit goofily, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's kind of funny and doing it. So it's a thrilling moment, intense moment, but it's kind of funny at the same time. And then followed by that great quote. Yeah. But the, so like I, I had said, that in my list too. It's a great yeah, moment. Cause the setup got me. I really thought they were, I totally forgot about that scene and the fact they come upon thinking they were coming upon Sarah and Steve and all of a sudden it's a bear. And I was like, Whoa. And just the ending made me laugh. So it got, yeah, it had a little bit of everything in it. Good call, man. The other moment, another uh, moment I'd like to point out relates to the opening quote. Actually, there's a moment where once again, Poitier wakes up in in a cabin and Knox is not there and he rushes out and Knox is already getting ready to leave early in the morning because the snow's coming, storm is coming and Knox wants to get a head start. And he feels like if he hauls ass, he can catch up to uh, his girlfriend, Sarah and the killer in no time, and that uh, Poitier should just stay at the cabin. It'll be fine. But this is where Poitier does this really, it's kind of funny because he pulls out his gun saying, you're not going without me. And Berenger calls his bluff. It's like, you're not going to shoot me. He starts walking off. And then Poitier does this really weak tackle, which is really funny, Mm -hmm. but he does manage to tackle Tom Berenger. But I do like this moment because that's when he delivers the quote to Berenger saying, you ever killed a man, you ever break up bank robbery, robbery, understand me, I'm qualified to go after this guy. You think you are, but you're not. It's a great moment where Poirier for once in this entire sequence, yes, you know, they've kind of saved each other's lives in this mountain wilderness, but this is where Poirier, I feel like is correct. As much as Tom Berenger is a mountain man, he has to understand that he hasn't faced off with a another human being that's a killer, like a murderer. Right, because if Knox he did hasn't go by dealt himself. with that scenario. Yeah, Knox would probably get killed. I mean, Stanton is basically saving his life right there. Yeah. He really is. He's saying, you, you actually do need me because I have experience in these matters. Mm-hmm. This is a serious situation, meaning I've gone up against, he says, the mafia, the Ku Klux Klan, the KGB. I've dealt with bad bad men and this is a bad man there's uh it's a moment of gravitas that i appreciated yeah there's speaking of another i have another moment of levity that I, <laughs> it's uh now where i think at this point gosh they've been through hell and they are climbing the rock face together and at one point behringer realizes in order to save oh, time yeah. Or save a day at least. He's got to climb a whole rock face. Literally do some like real rock climbing. Freestyle, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, like free solo. Uh, Although he does have a rope, so he's not completely, you know. But regardless, it's uh, you don't think sixty-year-old Sidney Poitier is going to make it up there. And Berenger says as much and says, "Look, you stay here. You'll be safe here. I made a little put up the tarp here against the rock face. You stay there. You'll be fine." I got to climb this and, you know, it'll save a day and I'll catch up to them. Of course, Portier refuses and he's all hard headed and follows Berenger up the rock face, climbing behind him. Berenger gets up to the top first, looks down, frustratingly sees Portier and goes, damn it. What were you thinking? 
attach the rope to your waist and I'll pull you up. And it's a great moment because then Poirier, who's out of gas at this point, he can barely even climb the rock, ties the rope around his waist and looks up at Berenger and raises his arms in the air and just goes, I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Berenger's just going to pull him up all by himself. And Berenger just looks at him and it's like, well, you got to climb too. I can't just pull you up on my own. But the look on Portier's face, like he's like, you're going to save me. Yep. Just pull me up. He's like, I'm ready. That's a, I, I laughed out loud. Yeah, it's a good scene because they do go a little bit back and forth where Knox tells him to tie himself and he'll, he's going to lower him down. And he's like, nope, not going. Right. And they go back up. And then Knox is like, all right, I'm leaving you. And then he just kind of walks away. And Stan's like, oh, shit, am I really going to be stuck here on the rock now? Yeah. And Knox is just feeling. debating, like, do I save him? What do I do? And then he goes back and, yeah, it's like, all right, I'll pull you up. Yeah. Bastard. So, yeah, that is a good scene. I should have put that on my list. That line delivery is really funny. Yeah, from it is. Because he's in such a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, my buddy Knox is going to save me now. Yep. I'm ready. <laughs> like, no, you got to do some work, too, pal. Very funny. Yeah, have any other moments or scenes? I've got a, I got a couple more. Uh, just a quick moment, just because it, it actually reminded me a little bit of Stir Crazy when when they initially go off to find uh, Steve and Sarah and, and the rest of the fishing crew because they're still alive at this point. They go on horses that would supposedly help them catch up, but unfortunately, the expedition takes a side trail. They're like, all right, we got to let the horses go, and uh, Stan's like, well, what are we going to do with the horses? And Knox just turns his horse around, just hits it, and just horse just takes off. So right. of course Stan's trying to do the whole thing, and it's just it just reminded me of Richard Pryor trying to like antagonize the bull. And I was like, oh, this is kind of oh. funny because Sidney <laughs> yeah. Poitier directed Stir Crazy, so I'm like, he's totally stealing from Richard Pryor in this scene, right. and he's yeah. just like they're doing like and like trying to say, go ahead, go ahead, horse, go ahead, horse, right. And then he finally just solves it by pulling out his gun and shooting the air and the, and the horse takes off. So I thought that was right. kind of funny. And I was like, oh yeah, it's got a little bit of stir crazy tie into it. So I found that uh fun. Definitely. there. That's a funny one. Good call. Good call. There's a scene I enjoy towards the end before the big action set piece at the end. A scene I liked a lot. We're introduced to a character named Fournier, who is a offense for like diamond dealing like and uh, trading and uh, illegal stuff like that. And they know that Fournier knows who the killer is and that he's going to meet up with him in order to uh, retrieve the diamonds and get the killer his money for the diamonds. So they can't go through normal channels in order to get the information. As it turns out, uh, they're supposed to be well, Stanton, at least, is supposed to be an FBI agent and play by the rules. But they kind of go outside the lines here. And I kind of like the scene where they infiltrate. You don't even see Knox and Stanton. You just hear their voices. Because the opening of this particular scene I'm talking about, we see Fournier like in his robe in his fancy house. And this is in Vancouver, Canada now. And Fournier is enjoying a little glass of whiskey and then the power goes out and he's like what the hell and all of a sudden somebody grabs him and they wrap duct tape around his waist they throw him in a chair and they wrap the tape around his arms and his waist and uh so he's taped to the chair and you just hear stanton and knox's voices in the background in the darkness and you can tell fournier starts freaking out and you hear from the little things that knox and stanton are saying that they're probably going to burn the house down 
et cetera, et cetera. And Fournier freaks out and gives up the information that they need saying, yeah, I'm supposed to meet with him tomorrow at the such and such. And the lights come on and the cops happen to be standing there and they're like, oh, thanks for the information. Uh, So I I thought that was a fun scene. It was interesting because it more relies on almost little tricks with sound design where you just hear Stanton and Knox kind of knocking things over in the house and saying little things to threaten Fournier, who's been duct taped to this chair, which intimidates him and makes him nervous. I just thought it was kind of a creative scene. Yeah. It's not one of my favorite scenes. I just like I just like that scene. Yeah, because it was kind of cool too at the end that the cops happen to show up and they hear all the information because you know, hey, someone called the police, so that's why we showed up to help you, and you just confess to a crime. So yeah, I like how they settled for me up. Right, because technically, out. yeah, what Stan and Knox are doing, like, it's not legal. They're not supposed to do something like that. So it's kind of convenient that when the lights come on, they're gone, but the cops are there. Yeah saying, oh, we just happened to show up because you called the co- the cops were called. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're here. And we just happened to show up while you were confessing all guts. this information. Yeah. Cool scene. And what else you got? Well, I'll, I'll go to uh, my final favorite scene, which uh, is what I call the ferry finale. This takes place on a boat ferry going out of Vancouver because the whole set piece start. It's a pretty long action set piece, but I'm cutting to the actual ferry finale. I mean, on the ferry boat, just a good act. It's good. It's good direction. It's good editing. It's an intense action sequence. You have both Stanton and Knox chasing the killer who has Sarah held hostage, and they're chasing him all over this boat. Uh, so there's groups of people around. You've got quick cuts. You got a lot of the chaos of the crowd. You know, that camera cast, like that shaky camera running through the crowds. There's a raw feeling to it. And when Poitier finally corners the killer on the top of the boat, this just really intense because he sees the killer about to take another hostage. Yeah, it's my favorite moment. not about to let that happen. And he just comes out in, into the open, giving himself up in a way, totally, and says, no, no. And by coming out into the open, he gets shot three times. The killer shoots him three times, takes three bullets. It's pretty intense. Then the killer just walks right up to him, puts his gun right up to his left eye, which is kind of his signature way of killing people in the movie, and is out of bullets. Because at this point, he's tried shooting at Knox, too. He's just, he's run out of bullets. And then he grabs Portier, and they both go off the side of the ferry into the uh, what must be freezing water. And at this point, Poitier still has his gun and uh, ends up shooting the killer underwater. It's pretty cool. I, I love the choreography, this whole scene on the ferry leading up all the way to the end when they fall off into the water. And Poitier shoots the killer and then points the gun at his left eye and shoots him in the head and kills the bad guy. And now he is done. <laughs> Poitier has been shot three times. And he's in the depths of the sea, but who comes to the rescue? But Knox jumps in and pulls him out of the water. And then the whole thing ends with a callback to that line earlier when Poirier said to Knox, you mountain men do this kind of shit a lot. And Knox says every damn day. Now the situation has been reversed. And Knox says to Poirier, you FBI guys do this kind of shit a lot. 
And the last line of the movie is Poitier responding with every damn day. Cut to black. Credits roll. Yeah, I thought it was a good moment when, you know, the killer has lost Sarah to Knox and, and Stanton. And they're running through, they're having to shoot out through the ferry, basically had him cornered. And he just sees that woman there, like hovering over her kids. He's like, come over here, come over here. And she's about to go to it. Yeah. You can see her like hesitate at first, but then she starts creeping. I'm like, oh my God, she's going to go over to him. Because then back of my head, I was like, oh my God, here we go. Another hostage standoff. What's going to happen? And then Dan just comes out of where he's kind of hiding. She's like, no, no. Unfortunately, he's not as good as Kurt Russell in Tombstone because, you know, he got shot three times. But right. And he doesn't, he doesn't say it like in cool slow motion. No. Like Kurt Russell. No. But it's intense. Yeah, it is intense. Like, yeah, that did get me. I'm like, don't go over there. Don't go over there. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Well, that's it for me for favorite scenes and moments. I don't know if you have anything else for that segment, Bill Bant. No, that is it. So let us move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. And uh, if it doesn't follow the Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. So uh, what do we have for Swiss cheese or complaint department? Well, Bill Bant, I've got a couple of holes, actually. Okay. I'm going to tell you about my holes. Go my my first hole is that opening scene, actually. We have the owner, the elderly gentleman, uh, who is the owner of the Fine Gems Jewelry Store. He is going in to retrieve these diamonds for the killer who's holding his wife hostage back at his house. So he goes into his own store. He has the keys. Granted, he's in a hurried state. He drops the keys onto the ground. He's unlocking the doors, goes in. He sets off the alarm to his own store. Yeah. I don't buy it. I think that's that's a hole to me because the thing is, is that he's been sent by the killer slash extortionist to go to his own store to retrieve these diamonds. And the last thing he'd ever want to do, because his wife's life hangs in the balance. And they mentioned that they killed his daughter. Uh, his dog. A oh, dog, sorry. Right. I thought they were going to say daughter, too, which oh, is funny that dog. he said that. I yeah. thought he said daughter. Stand corrected. Anyway, uh, but uh, regardless, the last thing he, the owner, would want to do is alert the cops in the situation. You would think, again, granted, he's a little rushed. He's clearly dealing with anxiety. But the last thing he would want to do is set off the alarm. But he does set off the alarm. It just I don't buy that. Mm-hmm. But then we need it for the story because the cops have to show the FBI has to show up in order to interrogate him and then lead them to the house and have the hostage situation take place. But I don't know. I didn't I didn't buy that. All right. So I'm, I'm going to piggyback off that scene then because I'm, I'm thinking about the end. So it almost seems like the killer knew he's going to get double crossed by the store owner or the, the husband because he sets up this elaborate way to, to escape with the fake boat. Like, so was his initial plan was to take the diamonds to the dock and take the boat away. But now that the police and FBI have shown up, he's like, Oh, okay. I'm going to send the boat off and I'm just going to hang out under the pier. Like he pre-planned that. Like he knew that was going to happen. Right. I see what you're saying. Cause so it's, you think- like, it's very convenient that he just happened to have mm. a boat in the dock and he was going to stay underneath the pier. I mean, it was cool what he did. Well, how does he know? How did he know all that was going to happen? I mean, really, your goal is he's going to go to diamonds, bring him back, 
he'll probably kill the husband and wife anyway, and then just take off. Right, right. If he, so you're saying you think it had the cops not intervened, if there was no police or FBI presence, that he would have just, prop, yeah, most likely because he is a murderer, would have killed the elderly couple and then just taken off with the diamonds, but not necessarily gone to the pier and taken off on a boat. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I, I think I just assumed that was probably his escape plan regardless. Like he probably would have killed everybody in that house, but still had planned on going to the pier and taken off in the boat. But I see what you're saying. Why would he, that seems elaborate if there wasn't any cops intervening. Right. Like he knew to rig the boat, send it on its way and then just hang out under the pier. Well, that part I thought, yeah, I just assumed he was, really being smart in the moment Mm -hmm. where he realized the cops would follow him clearly, obviously if he was in the boat. So he just, it's the old, like putting the brick on the gas pedal kind of thing. And if you know what it is, it's putting a knife in the gas pedal, you know, who did that? Yes. And he wasn't in the car. That's true. And the car somehow made it through that. Dalton. That's right. Your favorite scene. Yep. Roadhouse. (laughs) Pain don't hurt. Yeah. So that's a good one. I can see. I, I get it. I get I get what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're putting down, my friend. All right. I've got another hole. And this is an issue I find that I have. Maybe it pertains especially to 80s movies. I always have an issue when a civilian, a quote unquote civilian, teeps up with a cop or FBI agent. You know what it made me think of? I'm sick of the same thing. <laughs> because uh, I thought of... When way back when, which wasn't that long ago, we did for your eyes only. I made that comment when we have a vengeful Melina who continues to work alongside 007 throughout the entire movie. Yes. When she's committed these crimes and whatnot, but now she's working alongside an MI6 agent <laughs> with in no official capacity whatsoever, but she's going to uncover this whole thing or, you know, go through all of the adventures and whatnot. She's part of the team now, I guess. Right. That's the same thing here where I understand in the beginning, the civilian, AKA Jonathan Knox played by Tom Berenger is recruited by FBI agent Stanton because he serves a purpose or a need because he has to serve as a guide to Stanton to get him through the mountains. But once that purpose is fulfilled, he should no longer be involved with law. No, I know activities. it's like Knox go home. We'll call he you. Can't be doing cop shit. I know it's right? such a trope. It's like, such a trope. Now, I understand it because you got to do the flip here, right? Where now Knox is in Stanton's backyard, his turf, as they say in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And so now Stanton can say, oh, no, you're on my turf. We play by my rules. But the problem is there's other cops around. This isn't like they're on their own going all vigilante. They're working with law enforcement at this point. It would have worked better if they were kind of going off the grid because then Knox could help him or he would need Knox to help him do his cop shit. Yeah. I mean, Knox is literally in danger. He's being shot at. Oh yeah. You cannot do that a civilian. Even when like that cool scene I I liked actually when they duct tape uh, Fournier, the fence. Yeah. He's breaking the law. The Julie friends. Oh yeah. But why is Knox there helping him? Like Stanton, why are you recruiting Knox to help you do that? He's a civilian. Mm -hmm. That's all. That's a hole. That's just a clear hole. Because then, at, then I'm thinking about it at the end. Yeah, it's like, like you said, there uh, this intense action scene, which I love at the end, 
But why is Knox there running around? I granted his girlfriend's been kidnapped, but still he's getting shot at and stuff. If the there's law enforcement there, which there is, the Vancouver Police Department, they would be like, hey, John, Mr. Knox, sit down, buddy. We'll take care of this. This is what we do. Right? Yeah. That's all I'm gonna say about that. All right. So this is my big Swiss cheese. So we have a guy stole millions of dollars of diamonds has killed a woman we're debating if they killed a daughter or a dog but okay he's killed (laughs) and now he's escaped up into the wilderness there should be a massive manhunt going on you're not going to just send oh oh, yeah sure eventually you see someone else from the fbi back at the base cabin i mean they should have the whole border somehow blocked off yeah they might be able to find him you know track him down the woods and push him a certain way but Oh, this, this this should be a manhunt. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. You're sending the civilian and an FBI guy after a killer. That's it. It's a great point. And it's it, that is a hole for sure. Good call, Bill. 100 percent And it's funny because early in the film, when we have our killer driving up to cross the border, he comes across there's a cop car way down the road. Oh, I'd like that. And my first instinct was like, oh, it's a roadblock. They've already set up a roadblock just in case, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's a cop there because there's a, there was a car accident. Yeah. I like that. I thought that was kind of smart. I did like that. Pretty clever. What that the, uh, well, yeah, him, him thinking, cause it's one of the few times where someone sees something you know, and mistakes it for something else. But I was like, right. Oh, that was actually a clever one. But sometimes it's just so stupid. You're like, Oh, come on. Even the audience knows that the, you know, the cops up there for another reason. But I was fooled, too, that the cop was there because he's trying to block off the road because so they can remove the cars from an accident. And, of course, he's going to freak out about it and then turn around. I thought that was clever how they did that. That's funny because you make a good point there. Yes, that in itself in that moment is clever. But I was saying that it should have been a roadblock to reinforce oh, yeah. your point. Yes, that exactly. There should be a massive man on time. Yeah, like. You have a previous scene. You see uh, Stanton at the FBI office. He's talking about, you know, we've got to track these down, make the calls, do the thing. We've got to figure out who this guy is. Wouldn't that be one of the first things you would do mm-hmm. if you, you know, they're looking at flights out of San Francisco, they're going over the manifests of the whatever. And where would he try to escape to? Well, go north of Canada. Let's close the roads. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a quite a, I mean, that's a ways up, but still, right. I don't know. But that's a good call. It, you would, yeah, definitely be like, once they knew he was trying to cross the border into Canada, there would just be an army going after him or and or waiting for him on the other side. Yeah. Good call. Do we have to issue some complaints? We have some complaints. All right. Let's get to it. Let's complain. Quick one. All right. Do you believe Sarah and Knox are in a relationship? Do you buy the the two of them? I mean, that is definitely to me opposites attract. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't believe for one second they've done anything together. Uh, I'm almost like that's the first time they met. It seemed like to me. It would. <laughs> uh, that's I I don't know because we don't even we never see them together. Right. Exactly. He saves her and then runs off like two seconds later. Yeah. So that's an interesting point. We never really get to see if they have chemistry. Yeah, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't see no? it. I don't just see on it. face value alone? Yeah, you just don't, I, don't, I, don't, like, I don't see it. I don't see them being a couple. No, I don't either. I don't. Tom and Kirsty. Nope. 
John and Sarah. Okay. All right. I'll take your word for it, man. I, I just, I have no idea, but that's interesting. Yeah. There's a, we kind of assume that they, they don't even make that clear though, actually that they're together. They're like, yeah, they're sort of. No, because the, the sheriff kind of says like how he fell for her. Oh, that's right. You're right. They do make it clear. Like no, they didn't. More. <laughs> they never did. Bullshit. I call bullshit. Hey, this is a semi-complaint. One of uh, our mountain man's tips to Stanton is he says, because Stanton's his feet are a little tight in the, the hiking, the, I guess I'm assuming no, new hiking boots. He's probably getting blisters. Oh, yeah. And and uh, the, the boots are stiff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been there, done that. Get it. And he says to him, walk in, uh, get them wet. Get the shoes wet. Walking in wet shoes helps them break in. You know, I've done enough hiking and I've gotten my shoes wet before. And I'm not sure... I guess that's it's a decent recommendation in the moment, but the problem is the water is freezing, which you can see yeah. in the movie. He's freezing, but you get some crap in your shoes, but also you got to walk in wet socks for a while. And you always want dry socks when you're hiking. I don't know. I don't know about that advice in that situation. I was just questioning that a little bit, mm-hmm. but, and does it really help break in the shoes? Yeah, a little bit, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Here's a complaint. I actually, this is a serious complaint. Okay. Kirstie Alley really isn't given much to do in this movie, unfortunately. I mean, look, she holds her own. She has a few small moments showing strength in the face of adversity, or in this case, captivity. Killer gives her a diamond to keep. She throws it away. Uh, she kicks the killer in the balls. She eats a raw fish. She's definitely not weak, but she kind of is the hostage for the second half of the movie. And she really never gets her big moment i feel like well when she pretends she's a bear and scares the rest of the i thought that was kind of funny Ah, uh, they always think i'm a bear i thought that was that line funny. was funny i thought that moment was funny yeah but yeah she's just she's pretty to look at in the movie she's competent again holds her own she's a strong woman but doesn't have a ton to do in this movie no, I was kind of disappointed when they were doing the expedition scenes with the group because it's like, eh, I wish they had better conversations. I wish they showed her more of how she is with the, like, if someone got hurt, she's like, oh, use like, use these berries and rub it on your bug bite or, or something like that. If this movie was remade today, she would be even stronger. You yeah. could see that she was very competent and could use the tools and do the whole thing. And, and mm-hmm. we'd see her probably filleting fish and cooking, capturing, killing animals and doing the whole thing in yeah. the wild. That's all. Yeah. Kirstie Alley's great. And I thought she was underused. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm going to, you're, I'm sorry. This is, I know it's one of your favorite scenes with the, um, the hanging uh, basket, but oh, yeah. there's no way Knox survives that fall. Or if he does survive that fall, they're done right there. The rest of the movie is Stan having to take Knox back because he broke his back in half and he's paralyzed. Right. I mean, he just has a, a standard. He falls so far. With a standard rope, rope yeah. wrapped around him. He's done some serious damage. There's no, no way, doubt. There's no way he can carry on. Right. He's toast at that point. You might even say that's a hole, actually. I can't disagree with you. It looks great in the movie. It's very scary and intense, but he's fallen so far and the rope snaps. It would snap him in half. And like then I mean. slams yeah. into the side of the mountain. Oh, yeah. You're done. You've got concussions, you've got broken bones, and he's basically got like he has a cut on his arm, which 
doesn't really come into play. No, all they later. never talk about it again. He doesn't even he doesn't come off injured at all. No, really, doesn't even put some moss on it. Nothing. But yeah, that's why I couldn't put that in my favorite scene. I'm like, it is a fun scene. It's intense. There's no way he survives that. If it wasn't as far as it was, maybe. But I was like, oh yeah, Stan's got to carry him back. He's done. Toast. Good call. Hey, Bill Bant. Yes. If you're gonna have an actor that looks like Dennis Farina play the dickish, you know, fence jewelry fence character Fournier, mm-hmm. then just cast Dennis Farina. I was pissed. I was like. Oh my God, this would be a great, like, small supporting role for Dennis Farina. Would have loved to seen him in that role. Oh, instead. yeah. I just thought the actor, and all kudos to Michael McRae, who plays Fournier, mm-hmm. but I was just like, oh man, he looks just like Dennis Farina. And this is the 80s, man. Like, this is Farina's time. Yeah, he's just starting off then. I mean, he's, yeah, because I think. In 88? Yeah, because I think it's just crime story just started. So, yeah, we didn't really know who Lombard, he was. Lombard, yeah. Lombard and Miami Vice. Yeah, just a little Miami Vice. But yeah, I don't think we knew him enough that, that we were to cast him. All right. But that's a good Whatever, point, though. Man. That he, just, It does remind me of him. He's got that mustache and that yep. look, and he's just kind of a prick. Yep. And I'm just thinking of Farina, like in anything like Midnight that's, Run or whatever. That's a good call. I do like that. Uh, here's a real complaint. I have, because the other ones were fake. This one's real. Uh-oh. During that fairy finale. Yes. There's a nice callback when Stanton realizes that our killer probably chose the other fairy. Now, in this situation, there are two fairies. One fairy has the car that the killer was kill- uh, driving, uh, his getaway vehicle. And so you would normally naturally think that the killer was on that ferry. But the last second, Stanton stops Knox and goes, no, he's not on this ferry. He's on the other one. And Knox is like, why? He's like, because that's what he would do or something along those lines. And I'm like, oh, that's a callback to the opening scene. Correct. Where Stanton had sent the, or the, uh, sorry, the killer had sent the boat off, but remained underneath the pier. But Stanton didn't know that in the beginning. How would he know that at the end? Like, we knew that as an audience, but how does he know that at the end? True. You because see what he I'm could saying? Th- yeah, because he could have maybe jumped off the boat. So he doesn't he know. Done, that's the whole thing in the beginning is that, the killer gets away because they don't know he was still under the pier the whole time. Yeah, that's good. Stanton wouldn't know that. So why at the end does he assume that Stanton would be on the other ferry thinking, oh, that's a tactic that he would use. That's a good one. Because only the audience knows that he used the tactic in the original scene or the opening scene. Not, you know, you understand what I'm saying? I'm with you hundred percent on that one. That, Yes, that makes sense. I did see this one online with the, about the ferry, which I thought was kind of smart too. Where they see, you know, they see the car. Everybody runs to that ferry to check the ferry out, mm-hmm. and there's all these people that are around the ferry. One of the police asks, "Where did you see the people in this car?" Because they would have seen, they'd have been like, "Oh yeah, they got off and went to the other ferry yeah, for some reason." They, the, yeah, yeah. The crazy people ran over there to the other ferry. God, that's a good one. I, probably I like some that. eyewitnesses. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. take I couldn't take credit for that one. I I, I read that one online. No, it's all good. <laughs> but I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. I've already said that Knox wasn't going to make it through. I'm sorry, Stan was going to die at the end too. I, that was my last complaint. Yeah, and I. I I actually, that's a, that's a good call. I didn't even, uh, that wasn't my specific point. I didn't think he would have made it even to that, that far. 
I have them not surviving the outdoors. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> After the blizzard, the climbing the mountains and, and uh, it's either frostbite or exhaustion, but I, I don't, I'm, I'm just not, the chances are slim that he even survives the mountains, much okay. less than getting shot three times. And like you're, you're saying, which I agree with at the end. Well, the That's fact they tough. go through that entire mountain adventure, he gets away and they end up catching him in the city. Anyway, you could have just waited. Right. You could have just waited on the other side and <laughs> show up. You went through all that shit. You put yourself at risk. There is the real complaint, isn't it? Three quarters of the movie isn't necessary. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately yes <laughs> unfortunately uh, but okay so stanton, so stanton gets shot three times this is yeah. my complaint at the end i'm not 100 sure that even were technically kill shots but him and the killer fall, right. fall off the boat right so they hit the water the boat is still going boats don't have brakes right so they're underwater whatever doing their thing and then we see Knox perfectly jump off the boat to where they are. No yeah. way. They're, they're about a good 300 yards behind you. Sure. And then I would say at that point, Stanton is too deep for Knox to even go down and get the, the pressure. Because I, I even know now when I like in a pool or something like that, once you hit 10 feet, you're, I guess for me, because of my, my sinuses, my ears are going to explode. There's no way I could swim down and get Stanton. Oh, there's pressurization issues. There's, you know, how hard it would be to pull somebody up. Oh, yeah. In no, wet clothes. Oh, yeah. If you're not wearing an inflatable, like a BCD yeah. for scuba diving or anything like that. Like, I mean, that's tough. Yeah. And obviously, Stanton, I mean, uh, our guy Poitier is a big dude. I mean, maybe the cold water is, is in a way saving his life because it's stopping the bleeding. But they, there's no way they could find him in the water. There's no Suspension way. Suspension of disbelief. Yeah. I don't know if it holds up. Yeah, the it's, fact that perfectly dives in right there. Mike. And, you know, it may, to our listeners, come off a little bit nitpicky, and that's fine. I mean, we don't give a shit. But I agree with you, Bill. That These are the things we think about now, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we wouldn't so you, think of like that as, as a kid. As kids, we were just like, oh, my God, I can't believe he survived. That's intense. And he's, mm-hmm. the guy dove in, and he saved his buddy and their friends now. That's cool, man. That was cool. And now we're going... Yeah, that's not realistic at all. And I think of this all the time. I've been very fortunate to be have been on cruise ships. And I always think about that if I had if I fall overboard, what hap- would happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm as like, soon as you're falling, the boat's way past you. If somebody doesn't see me fall overboard, I'm screwed. Because mm-hmm. this boat's cruising. And granted, the ferry's probably going at a slow clip, but still. It's still fast. Enough. It's fast enough where, and it's hard to see. And like and Knox, like you said, knows where to jump into the water and they retrieve him. It's all good. Yeah. It would have been more believable if Stant was able to come back to the surface right. and they were already making their way out that way on something. And Knox was like, there he is. And Knox throws the, the, the classic throwing the uh, yeah. life preserver, right? Life I preserver. would have found that more believable than him literally diving off the boat right where he is. Good call. But we still like this movie. Uh, yeah, we're, oh, yeah. No, hey, we're having fun, man. This is sometimes it's fun to this is part of the downside of being older and, ex, you know, yeah. experience. We just get jaded sometimes, you know. I know. Uh, but no, it, it is funny. And here's my thing is like, this is one of those things, again, back to the point of if this were remade today, because in my opinion, this movie should have literally been split in half, meaning we just talked about how this is a fish out of water story i.e. Stanton has to learn the ways of the mountain from Knox. But then 
when Knox joins Stanton back in the city, he doesn't really learn much about survival in the city. Correct. Or the ways of, whereas if I were to remake this movie personally today, it would be again split in half where it does get reversed and you really see now this is Stanton's turf and Knox has to learn. So which would have again lend itself to what I was saying earlier, where it would have been more interesting if Stanton and Knox had to go off the grid. They can let the cops know what they were doing because what they were about to do wasn't technically legal in order to catch the killer because the killer he's working on his own terms and they would have to go a little bit rogue as a, as a cop and this mountain guy. And uh, they're now newly forged, uh, forged friendship. Let's say, you know, Knox really trusts Stanton and Stanton's telling him uh, shows him just how to be a cop in a way. Right. It's just Knox even just being uncomfortable being in the city environment, just like, you know, I hate crowds. Thank you. Yes. From even Knox's point of view, just mm-hmm. being uncomfortable, just like Stanton was uncomfortable on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. We didn't get to see that. No, not really. And so that's a complaint of mine, like, cause I thought they missed a bet there where that could have been, there could have been a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. Anything else? And uh, yeah, that's it, man, for my complaints and right. holes and issues. Cool. Let's move on to, Hey, it's that actor. And this <laughs> super enthusiastic. Right. right. Here we go. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's hey, it's that actor. I'll let you go first on this one. All right. I'm going with an actor named Frederick Coffin. I'm choosing him in part because I think he's got a great name. Frederick Coffin. School gotcha. stage name. Uh, he plays Ralph. He was what I'm calling the mustache fisherman guy. Yes. <laughs> so one kind of fisherman expedition with the mustache. Uh, wonderful character actor. Again, I always say this, but it's true because there's just too many things for me to list here on this podcast. Look him up on IMDb. And I am just calling him out because he also goes on to play Lieutenant Kevin O'Malley in my favorite Steven Seagal movie, 1990s Hard to Kill which, by the way, has one of the best Seagal hero names, Mason Storm. Just I'm a big fan. <laughs> it's not better than Jack Burton, but it's up there with like best hero names. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, and also, so Frederick Coffin plays uh, the Lieutenant Kevin O'Malley in Hard to Kill. But then he also plays the character Horton in 1991's V.I. Warshawski and I had to mention this, oh, man. and I, I'm doing this in part for, for Marwan because he, I know this cracks him up. Fiat Warshawski comes out with Kathleen Turner. I believe I did go to the theater to see this. This is one of the few movies I was so tempted to walk out of, but for the longest period, I considered V.I. Warshawski to be the worst film I've ever seen in my entire life on this planet. I loathe that movie. I still have not seen a moment of that movie since 1991. I have not seen that movie because of you. <laughs> Just for the record, I have not seen that movie because of you. And you know, I usually will go see crappy movies. As much people will warn me, that is one I have stayed away from just because of your hatred for it. Right. That's, that's great. We should have a, you, Marwan, and myself, we should have a, a viewing party and uh, watch VR. See, see who can make so it I to can the get end. Get over it. 
Uh, yeah, just to see, see, is it really, was it really that bad? Or was I just in a, a bad state of mind when I saw it? Regardless, Marwan cracks me up because every time we see a bad movie, we hear about a bad movie. It's like, was it as bad as Marshawski? Because <laughs> he knows how passionate I, my hatred was for that movie. Sorry, Kathleen Turner and the makers of Yeah, Marshawski. I know you didn't set out to make a bad movie. Regardless, my hey, it's that actor is Frederick Coffin and R.I.P. passed away at the age 60 in 2003. Frederick Coffin, who's your, hey, is that actor? So, yeah, this was a hard one for me because I didn't want to use any of the guys from the fishing expedition. And then some of the other like character actors I saw, I'm like, I don't know if most of these people would even know who they are once I pointed them out. So I kind of cheated a little bit and I went with uh, Michael Chapman, who played the lawyer for, um, for Fournier. For Fournier, yes. Yeah. And the reason I did was, and I, I had to look this up. I, I didn't recognize him. I'll, I'll be honest. It's all good. Yeah, you're trying to. I got you. Right. But he is he's a two-time Oscar-nominated cinematographer. Oh, cool. Yeah, he did the cinematography for Shoot to Kill. And uh, he was nominated uh, for 1980's Raging Bull and 1993's The Fugitive. And in 2004, he was honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Society of Cinematographers. Um, it's not something we usually talk about in the pods or many pods. Actor was uh, what? Yeah. So other notable movies that he was a cinematographer for was The Last Detail with Jack Nicholson, uh, Taxi Driver, The Lost Boys, Scrooged, and Doc Hollywood. And he's done cameos in many other films, uh, some that he has worked on. And uh, he was in The Abyss, Quick Change, Kindergarten Cop, Rising Sun, and Evolution. So shout out to Michael Chapman. Uh, one of uh, movies, uh, great cinematographers. Unfortunately, he did pass away back in 2020. But uh, I figured, you know, we we do try to point out character actors too. But I was like, oh, here's a chance to point out someone that's kind of behind the camera outside of a director or writer. That's great. That's a great poll, man. That's that's that was just a cool find. Absolutely. Well done. Thanks for that info, man. Mike Chapman, badass. That's great. Yeah. Let's move on to facts and trivia which was surprisingly tough to find some facts and trivia for this movie. Do you got anything, Jason? Then I just got a few things here. Uh, I'm not going to bore the audience. As mentioned, I believe in the what's on the box segment. And we talked about this in our under the radar mini. So this was Sidney Poitier's first acting role in 11 years. He took a break. Cause he was doing you know, the directing thing. Also, I alluded to this earlier, uh, but this film was actually called Deadly Pursuit in the UK. Yes. Because this is interesting and sad at the same time, tragic, because of the recent massacre in Hungerford, where Michael Ryan had gone on a shooting rampage, killing around a dozen people and injuring several others. So it was thought to be in bad taste to release a film with shoot in the title. Mm -hmm. So in the UK, they renamed Deadly Pursuit. Yes. Um, so the director, uh, Roger Spottiswood, had uh, one of his scripts produced, which kind of reflects this a little bit with the uh, civilian cop aspect. Uh, he was a right, one of the writers on uh, 48 Hours. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, you could definitely see some similarities between the two. For sure. And that's, see, there you go. There's the civilian cop buddy action movie yep. right there. There's a pro- That's the prime example. Yep. I will actually talk. 
I mean, I'm a fan of the rewatchables and Bill Simmons brings this up all the time that 48 hours that kind of starts the whole run of the buddy action movie and or movies, but that civilian cop team up works. They make it work like Nolte needs Murphy in order to like uses him for different reasons. As far as I recall, Mm-hmm. I mean, is, is, it a, is it reckless still to involve a civilian in these police activities or whatever? But I don't know that they make it work in that film. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. You bring up yeah, another movie with that civilian cop team up. I guess, yeah, it's just a matter of the writing's good enough that you, they make, you make it believable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of my favorite moments from Shoot to Kill, that fight where... It's not really a fight, but Sidney Poitier tackles Tom Berenger and has the quote where he says, uh, if you ever killed a man, and he says, well, I've been up against the mafia, the Ku Klux Klan, and the KGB. And Sidney Poitier has. In the movie Let's Do It Again, 1975, In the Heat of the Night, 1967, and Little Nikita, 1988, respectively. Yes. He was up against the mafia and the Ku Klux Klan and the KGB. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so while the film itself uh, supposedly doesn't get to Canada until the final act, uh, Shoot to Kill was mainly shot in British Columbia. Um, there was some shooting in San Francisco, and the underwater fight climax uh, that's supposed to take place in the Vancouver waters is actually in the... Now, do you say Caribbean or Caribbean? I say Caribbean. Caribbean? All right. It was in the Caribbean Sea off the Bahamas. Uh, and my last little bit of fact trivia is uh, this was Poitier's first and only rated R film in which he is a headlining star. Yeah, I saw that. I thought I found that interesting too. Tiny fact, uh, shooting began on April 13th, 1987 and was completed in July of 87. Long time there. Move on to box office. So this movie was released on February 12th, 1988. On a budget of about $15 million. it grossed $29.3 million domestically. It debuted at number two at the box office and stayed there for two weeks. And it stayed in the top 10 for six weeks before dropping out in late March. Uh, moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we loved catching at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of the film was split. Roger liked the chemistry between Portier and Beringer. He found it to be an entertaining movie, well put together. Um, Gene found too many gaps in the logic of the film and found Beringer to be dull. Both Cisco and Ebert did, of course, have high praise for Sidney Portier's performance. Awesome. All right. So, yeah. So now we're on to additional thoughts and questions. There's some additional thoughts and questions about Shoot to Kill. Yeah, I just have a couple additional thoughts. It's a little story time with Jason. Okay. Speaking of one of my favorite scenes, the crossing the gorge scene, uh, where you are correct, Bill Bant, Tom Berenger should have been split in half when the they rope caught him. Uh, but I was also talking about how these types of films bring up all these kinds of fears and fears of heights and whatnot. And that particular scene, there's a really funny moment, actually, when Berenger is putting the rope, tying the rope around his waist and he tells Poitier's plan. It's like, well, I'm just, I'm going to climb across the rope to the other side to get the basket. And Poitier just goes, Oh shit. <laughs> I, love yeah. that moment. I just want to call that out. But also it reminded me of 
recently I had the good fortune of going to Salida in Colorado. And it is, I was told by the locals pronounced Salida, not Salida, Salida as, as in Spanish for exit. And I was there with my family in Salida and my niece and nephew and I did a climbing obstacle course. It was like the challenge course at a place called Captain Zipline. Ooh. So you go up these, and for the listeners out there, if you've ever done this or you haven't done this, give it a shot unless you have a fear of heights. But you go up on to these little obstacle course type things where you climb up these poles and ladders. And then you have to literally do things like they did in this movie where you are climbing across a rope or uh, across a rope ladder and you are like 50 to 100 feet in the air. And now you are harnessed in, you have a harness and you're with carabiners and everything and you're locked in. But there's one point where I felt like I was Tom Berenger going across this rope and I fell off, but you would just hang. But you're so fearful, your instinct is to grab onto the rope like your life depends on. And that's what I did. Like I was going to like fall to my death, but obviously that couldn't happen. I had this harness on me. And finally, I had to. I just had to let go because I got too tired, and I just hung there in the harness like an idiot. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I just wanted to give a shout out to Captain Zipline, and I didn't know Bill if you'd done anything like this before. Uh, do you consider yourself like an outdoorsy type of guy? Do you like to hike or bike or or get up in the mountains at all? It's funny because I used to, of all places of Florida, I used to go camping all the time in the Everglades, but I really haven't done any of that since I've moved out here to California and we have the mountains and can even do camping on the beach. I haven't done any of that stuff yet. And I keep saying I'm going to do it and I haven't, I haven't really done any kind of serious hiking, but that obstacle course thing I have done before. Um, One of my old jobs out of college, we would do like this team bonding stuff and that's where they would take us do those courses. I remember one of the things we had to do is we'd you'd literally climb up like a telephone pole and it was about right. two, I will say two stories high. And then there was like a, like a swing out there and you, they would have you jump out and try to grab it. Oh, and I man. remember I, I hit the pole and I missed. And like you said, yeah, you're all tied up and you weren't going anywhere, but I did have a fear of heights. I mean, I, still a little bit but not as much like that stuff actually kind of helped but yeah i remember right. climbing up there and you just feel the wind and you feel like the pole shaking it's, and then yo, you're literally yep, exactly. standing on the top of it i mean it's as wide as a bucket but because you're up that high you're like oh my god you lose your balance it you do yeah. you do your whole sense of balance you get a little bit thrown off a little dizzy mm-hmm. it, it messes with your whole sensory but those are fun yeah you do a lot of on the ground, team building exercises, and then you kind of work your way up and into getting up there among the uh, the poles and stuff. Yeah, those those obstacle courses are cool. We did one uh, years ago in at the Cave of the Winds, also in Colorado Springs, which was extreme because it was actually located right on a cliffside. So if you were on the edge of the obstacle course, you could look all the way down this cliff, and that was really oh yeah, that was scary. Would, that was yeah, really scary. Mm-hmm. Anyway, a shout out to Captain Zipline in Salida, Colorado, also because I remember telling the guide who was great about our podcast. And uh, I hope uh, he's listening. Oh, cool. or, anyway, uh, another uh, short story. You know, I talked about needing more saxophone in my movie theme music. Yes. And uh, our composer for this soundtrack was John Scott. And I looked him up to see what other scores he had done. 
And this was just really strange. This happens to all of us, but this is what happened to me on this very day. I'm looking up John Scott's IMDb, and he did the score for a movie called The Milagro Beanfield War, which was directed by Robert Redford. And I haven't thought about that movie in 20 to 30 years. And I was listening to a podcast earlier today on the film Ordinary People, which was also directed by Robert Redford, and they brought up The Milagro Beanfield War. It's two times I've come across that movie in the same day. And it made me think of, speaking of cruise ships, when I was younger, I went on a cruise with my family. And this is me, what a movie buff I was in the 80s, is that with all the wonders of the the ship and where we were going and the the sights and the sounds and everything we were going to see and the adventures we were going on, I loved the fact that there was a movie theater on the ship. And I wanted to go see a movie on the ship. That sounds like you. It's like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, all these things to to see and do. And I'm going to go sit in a darkened movie theater and watch a movie, which I could do at any point. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and guess what was playing? The Milagro Beanfield War. Oh, my God. And so I did not go to see a movie. So the Milagro Beanfield War uh, pushed me away. And I was able to actually enjoy the cruise. Anyway, uh, those are just some weird stories, little story time with Jason uh, for my my additional thoughts. But I've got some questions okay. for you. And I should say, really, this is just only one question. Hey, man, favorite or best extreme outdoors movie? Here's some choices. Okay. The Edge, Alec Baldwin, okay. Anthony Hopkins. Underrated. Good movie. I like that movie. Yeah. Alive. Oh man. Rough one. That's a rough one. That was I remember being so tense throughout the whole thing because I'm always just thinking something bad was gonna happen then every time. Didn't that come out when we were in school? Did that come out when we were I think we I think we might have saw it because it was right when we got back from um winter break, a bunch of us went. Okay. That sounds right. Yeah. Uh we mentioned the rever uh revenant. Mm -hmm. How about 127 hours? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Into the Wild. Yep. Sean Penn directed that, right? I believe so. Uh, how about The Great Outdoors? <laughs> Classic. Uh, I threw First Blood in there. Oh, that's a good one. Cliffhanger, we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that, that opening scene, though. It's a good Michael Roker movie, too. Yeah. Uh, I saw a movie called The Mountain Between Us with Idris Elba and Kate Winslet. It's not very good. Okay. Castaway. Oh, yeah, Tom Hanks. Vertical Limit with Chris O'Donnell, or maybe K2 with Michael Bean. Okay. There's two more. Deliverance. Oh, man. Yeah. Damn. I, I forgot my... about that one and I came across it in the list. I was like, ooh. I might change my answer now. And finally, The River Wild. So, something to think about. Maybe a favorite or what what you consider your favorite say, or maybe the best outdoors movie. I would say the best one would be Deliverance, but I will never forget watching Alive. And I think I was literally like huddled because I just always just thinking just nothing's going right for these. Even when there was that one scene where they were like took a part of the plane and they're sliding down the, the mountain trying to have oh, a good time. Yeah. And I'm like, right. oh, one of them's going to fall off a cliff. Or they're going to crash through the snow. That, that's all I kept thinking the whole time. I'm just like, nothing's going right for these people. And it was oh, and yeah. it was supposed to be a lighthearted moment. And it was. And I couldn't enjoy it because I was so 
thinking, oh my God, something bad's going to happen or something bad's going to happen to him. But Deliverance would be the best one alive. Yeah, I, that experience watching that movie will be with me forever. You know, yeah, that that's just a really good call, man. I'm hard to disagree because from a filmmaking standpoint, I mean, Deliverance has its place, you know, but I'll, I have a, a fond memory of summiting Mount Whitney with my sister, which is up in Lone Pine here in uh, good old California and beautiful mountain. After I had accomplished that feat with my sister, it was a great bonding experience for the both of us. I came home and watched Vertical Limit with Chris O'Donnell (laughs) (laughs) just to celebrate. Uh I remember I may have had a few beers and watched that movie and just been like, I did it. I did it. I'm like Chris O'Donnell in this movie. Which one has the trailer where where they show the leap where they like literally leap? Right. Is that Vertical Limit? I I know it's one of those two. It's either that or K2. I know it's one of those two. Yeah. Yeah. I just always love that shot. I'm like, holy shit. Right, he's just like swinging with the <laughs> with the hooks, like 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 nobody can see what I'm doing right now, but I'm literally swinging my arms, like I'm with those axes in my hand, the, like the ice axes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So yeah, fond memory of watching Vertical Limit the first time. Uh, I'm a big fan of Castaway too. This is tough, but yeah, from filmmaking standpoint, yeah, Deliverance. Uh, I I love First Blood too. I don't oh know. Yeah, yeah, that's that would be my top five. Yeah, top three. We'll just say top three. So, Deliverance probably best film all around, but uh, nostalgia. I don't know. I think I might go with uh, First Blood actually. Okay. No. Anyway, uh, here's some documentary recommendations. Okay. For outdoors movie or extreme outdoors movies, Uh, these are pretty popular. So you may have heard of them, but if you haven't, check them out. Free Solo, The Dawn Wall, 14 Peaks, The Alpinist. And this one's a tough watch, but it's still fascinating. Grizzly Man, directed by Werner Herzog. I don't know if you're aware of that one. Yes, I've heard of most of them. Unfortunately, I have seen none of them. My documentary, I'm way behind on my documentary watching. They're all great. Uh, That's all I got, man. All right. Yeah, I was going to ask, but you kind of already said, because you haven't seen that many, favorite Sidney Poitier movie. But I guess your choices are limited. Oh, yeah, they are, unfortunately. I, I'm ashamed to say, yeah, I just haven't seen enough. Okay. I do I do remember, uh, though, my parents actually wanting me to see Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yes. Uh, it's a great movie. Yeah. Catherine it's Hepburn. a great movie. Yeah, it was, that was, I remember watching that as a kid. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, it made an impact on me. And there he's wonderful, you know, Sydney Poitier is wonderful in it. And obviously the subject matter was, it was good to watch as a kid. I yeah. felt. I would, like I said, I would highly recommend, I need to go back and watch some more of his films. Um, but if you just catch, you know, his highlight ones in the heat of the night, guess who's coming to dinner to serve with love, defiant ones, blackboard jungle, which was one of his early roles. Um, yeah. Definitely go check him out. I know even after we did stir crazy, I need to go back and watch some of the films he even directed yeah. Um, and start in so yeah we don't you know we, we certainly lost the legend well said yeah um so yeah let's uh move on to uh recommendations so shoot to kill yeah you know what i recommend it absolutely 100 percent. however it's not i wouldn't say it's run to your nearest streaming device and find it uh, even though it's difficult to find we had to watch it on youtube yeah so it is on youtube so you can find it there yeah you could watch it for free on youtube 
Yeah. That's my recommendation, actually. Don't mm-hmm. pay for it. It's good. It's not great. It's a good, slightly above average action movie and solid performances. It's engaging. Once you start watching it, you'll want to watch it through to the end. That much I can say. Yeah, it's watching it as a kid. I found it thrilling and fast. There was different aspects about it that were fascinating. I think some of my favorite scenes covered that, like the, that whole fear factor thing probably fascinated me as a kid. And uh, But now watching it um, and having been exposed to a bit more in uh, my 48 years, a different reaction now. It's kind of like, yeah, it's all right. But if there's nothing else on and you come across it, watch it. You'll have fun. It's, it's a well-made movie. Yeah, I think if I went through my old VHS tapes that I record off of, HBO or any of those. I think I did record this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an entertaining movie with lots of holes. Like I said, you don't have to rush out and see it, but you're not going to be like, oh my God, you guys just made me waste two hours of my life watching this thing. I don't. Think. Right. It's, it's a middle of the road action film. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, that's a good it's, way it's to say middle it. middle of the road. Because I was going to say like second tier or middle tier, but yeah, middle of the road is a better way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I said, it was under on our underrated gems podcast, and that's where we're going to leave it. But yeah, because of Sydney Poitier's passing, I, I, we really just thought we should just bring this to people's attention because I think he only did this little Nikita. I think is that the only two? I think the only two eighties mm-hmm. movies he did, and then I think Sneakers was in ninety. Yeah. All right. I'm glad we watched it, man. Yeah. I'm. I'm I was happy to see it again. Yeah, like I said, it's been a while since I saw it, and it was. Yeah, it was all flooding back when I was watching it, and I was like, "Wow, time time's up." All right, let me get my notes together and uh, let's get the show in the road. All right, so uh, I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week we'll be discussing the 1986 teen drama Pretty in Pink, starring Molly Ringwald, John Cryer, and Andrew McCarthy. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at All80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Becomes the killer's latest hostage. Damn it, I almost got through the whole thing. Oh. Uh.